The title of the message is Giving Room to the Holy Spirit. And I just had this flashback before coming out. Actually, that was the title of the first message I ever gave here years ago uh, to this beautiful church, was the title Giving Room to the Holy Spirit. I love the idea. Um, And of course, we just read chapter 4, verse 17 down to verse 32, which is almost would be, it's almost like against the law to like just deal with one sitting, but we're going to do our best. Um, I read an article this last week that was printed in the New York Post. Here's the title of the article. The title is, A Massive, Silent, Cultural Revolution Has Changed America. Let me say it again. A massive, silent, okay? Silent, cultural revolution has changed America. And the article notes that the revolution that has taken place in this individual site's this revolution and what it looked like, what it looks like in our culture, like the last 10 years, 15 years, has not come from the summer of love, like the 60s or something, or Timothy Leary's, you know, altered state of consciousness. It hasn't come out of, you know, LSD trips and stuff. It, it, it has happened in people's minds. It's like, it's happened really quietly in people's minds and how people think. And in the article, what I believe the author is saying, in essence, is that this silent cultural revolution has resulted because minds of Americans have become static with with little consideration on the consequences of decisions. So it's as if, and I'm just going to give this metaphor. I'm going to mix so many metaphors this morning, so I'm just forewarning you. But it's as if, like our culture has been stunned with this stun gun, and it's like, you, the, like their culture has this stare. Like maybe they're just overloaded, too much information, too much going on, or just, they just kind of want to gel, like they're sitting in front of the television set. They don't really want to think about thinking. They really don't want to think about the consequences of decisions. Now, this is the New York Post, you know. And and you can hear the writer's concern that while he favors tolerance, he's so concerned people are not considering consequences. So this is how he ends his article. He ends by saying, if you're a baker, you can refuse to cater a gay wedding for any reason you please. You're too busy, you're taking a few days off, you're hungover, but if you say the words, I don't approve of gay marriage, you'll not only be vilified, you're gonna be bankrupted. He said, let's hope that years from now, another cultural revolution has followed and Americans will be able to think whatever they want without fear of condemnation. Now, why did I begin this way? Well, Ecclesiastes 1.19 says, there's nothing new under the sun. See, what Paul is identifying in this very passage that we read, this is very important, that his generation had this unusual stare about it. His generation had the stare. It's like, numb. Is anybody home? Are you really thinking this through? His generation, please look at it, verse 19, was past feeling. That's a big loaded idea. There's a deadness, in other words, a numbness, callousness, a desensitization taking place in his generation. How many of you are tracking with me so far? Does that make sense? Look, if someone is like past feeling, that's very dangerous because if you lose feeling, you lose perception of what reality is. I mean, you might have your hand in scolding hot water, but you don't know it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
Desensitization is no one's friend. Numbness is no one's friend. Deadness is no one's friend. Past feeling is no one's friend. Having the stare of just not really thinking about thinking, thinking about choices and their consequences is no one's friend because it can lead you to things that are really, really deadly. You know, I'm reminded, here's the mix of metaphors, I was reminded of an experience I had when I came back to our country from Israel a couple of months ago, and I was going through passport control, which I've done like billions of times, but it's a little different these days because they're doing face recognition. So before you like give your passport materially to the person who's going to check you in or not, they actually take a picture of you, and I, I think they wanted my thumb as well, I can't remember. So they took a picture, I was really offended because it came back and just flashed, ugly, no, just kidding. Anyways, I was like, Please, you know, uh, sorry. Um, but, you know, took a picture and then I just printed out a little thing. And then I go to the passport control and I hand in my passport thing. And I was just, you know, looking at the gal and she was so kind, just stamped it immediately. I was thinking, oh, good, she must think I'm a nice guy. And then so I walk in, I get my bags. And then you kind of go through a little section. You hand your little piece of paper and stuff to someone. And then I wasn't expecting this because I don't remember in times past. So, and I was actually running to get to the plane. I was just barely making my, my connection flight. And I, so I was just kind of running down this hallway and, and people were being stopped. And so you had a passport customs guy stop me. And he asked me something about merchandise. And, um, and I said, no, no, no. I, I, I can't remember the exact question. I said, no. And he, and he followed up. It was like, no, 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 no. Any merchandise? And I said, no. Listen, I was in Israel teaching at a Bible college in Jerusalem. Okay. And he went like this. Without saying anything, he went, he just went like this. I just saw this little thing right there. And I, I was like, can I go? Is it okay to go? He didn't say anything. He just went like this. Okay. So then I went. I figured it out. You know? Um, but could you imagine, please hear me. Could you imagine... Um, a, a passport control customs agent, okay, they're just, they're anatomic, if that's the right word. Or I mean, they're just, they're sitting there with a stare and they're not really thinking it through and they're just, they're just going like this. You know, it's just a figurehead. They're not really checking anything because if that took place, I guarantee you, bombs, drugs, which alter your state of consciousness and numb you from reality, and thieves would come into this country. How many of you believe that? Just raise your hand, okay? You better believe it. So look, here's the thing. Like the Lord is really concerned that we don't have this stare that we're just like, okay, you know, it doesn't really matter what I think. doesn't matter what I lit in my eyes. doesn't matter what I lit in my ears. doesn't matter what I lit into my home. doesn't matter what I lit into my kids' ba- uh, uh, bedrooms or my grandchildren's bedrooms. It just does, just like, this is non-thinking, numbness, and desensitization. That is majorly deadly. And what Paul identifies here in verse 17 through 19, is not only that his generation kind of had this condition of a customs agent letting anything and everything in, kind of past feeling, but, please hear me, the church, in verse 17, is no longer to do as the Gentiles do. The church, Christians, the counterculture to culture, is not to be like this. It's just, it's, it's not to be numb. It's not to have the stare. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, 
My generation has the stare. It's like the New York Post guy could have wrote, written what he wrote 2,000 years ago. Has the major stare past feeling really, really dangerous. And he's saying, but we are a counterculture. We are the church that Jesus is building. We are a counterculture to culture. And we, we cannot have this stare. Is it possible a Christian could have this stare, not thinking about their thinking, the consequences of their thoughts, consequences of decisions? We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But, but the church is something totally different than the culture. Now, this is very important. The passage identifies that the core reason for the breakdown of culture, Paul identifies the the core reason why there's callousness and deadness and numbing and desensitization that leads to indulgent sensualism. What he's identifying here is he's saying that the the culture in Ephesus 2,000 years ago is kind of like a San Francisco of the day. They they were experiencing a full-blown case of just, of of this, of like a, a viral sexual immorality. There were no boundaries. There was breakdown in the family. And it's traced back to, look at verse 18, being alienated from the life of God. It's a similar point that Paul makes in Romans 1, 21 through 32, that the loss of relation to God leads to uncontrolled, outrageous, sinful behavior, especially with regard to sexual immorality. Or sec- regard to sexuality. And going back to the New York Post article and the writer's concern about the stare, if you will, that exists in our society, kind of the non-thinking about one's thinking and the consequences of actions, it's actually rooted in breakdown in relationship with God. And once, please hear me, once a culture gets past feeling and the past feeling of desensitization is totally akin to a breakdown to the original design of sexual relations. Once a society gets there, man, that's really dangerous. How many of you are tracking with me on this? Super dangerous. In fact, he's just saying this whole like stare, this deadly stare of non-thinking, come on in, 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 bring the bombs, bring the thieves, rip off our kids, rip off our generation, rip off future generations, rip off my marriage, come on in, come on in, come on in, come on in. It's totally rooted, alienated from God. It's a broken relationship with the one who made us. And there's increments to that. There's problems to that big time because the wages of sin is death. But when there's a full-blown case of brokenness, it manifests itself in sexual impurity. Now, now, aren't you glad you came this morning? Okay, now here's the thing. There's hope. And the hope is Jesus. Look at verse 20 and verse 21. It tells us, well, you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. But wait, can Christians have this stare, this non-thinking, this mindlessness, this desensitization? Um, I want to be very careful there. Yes, but only for a very short time because it would be the result of unrepentance, returning to the Lord. And a genuine Christian repents of their sin and continues to repent when necessary. It would have to be the failing of verse 22 to verse 24 That's just not being implemented 
When he says, and he's using, now he's mixing his metaphors, you know. <laughs> Verse 20, put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on, kind of this clothing thing, the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, um, can a Christian like, can a, like a father just be like at his home, just come in, come in, come in, come in, come in, come in, through the television, through the thing, through the internet, and just like, just numb, not even thinking, it's too much overloaded? Um, yeah, but, but have to be for a short time because genuine Christians return to the Lord. And that's a good thing because there's healing and there's renewal and shalom and repentance. That's a great thing. It'd have to be a short time, not a, not a real, 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 long, long, long time, because genuine Christians continue, actually, in the faith. Genuine Christians will finish by the grace of God. Look, the failure to implement verse 22 through verse 24 would actually be to grieve the Holy Spirit, whose ministry is to exalt the person of Jesus in your life, and mine, and to protect us. It's awesome. And to continue his work of healing and growth more like Jesus in our life. Look, the Holy Spirit is kind of like a Nehemiah. In fact, Nehemiah's name means comforter. And one of the names that attribute to the Holy Spirit is comforter, brings shalom, brings well-being, brings security. How, how many of you know the story of Nehemiah out of curiosity? Oh, this great Jewish brother, you, you know, spearheads this great movement back to the city of Jerusalem. It had been it laid waste, it had been destroyed. Long story short, he builds the walls with the help of a bunch of other people, builds the walls in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, these are metaphors, now I'm using it. But wall, of course, can protect from bad guys. In, in Jerusalem, the fact that the walls were broken affected every aspect of Israel's life. It affected them emotionally, they were full of fear. It made them vulnerable to their enemies, like bringing bombs in and bringing thieves in, and it affected their worship. Okay, it, I mean, even though the temple had been built, it's like, man, no one really wants to settle in Jerusalem and really, you know, get it on and, and honor, honor the Lord and go for it because we're so vulnerable with, with no walls. It's like the Holy Spirit is so much our friend, the third person of the triune nature of God. Because he's like a Nehemiah, he's just like, dirty man. He's, he's like this killer customs agent, not gonna let that in, not gonna let that in. Because that will destroy you. It's like the Lord has something phenomenal for you. He has emotional, intellectual, spiritual well-being. And the Holy Spirit brings the person and work of Jesus Christ and, and his front and center to our lives and continues that repairing of our life. So the question becomes, well, how do we give room to the Holy Spirit rather than grieve the Holy Spirit of God? And based on this passage, let me back up one more time. Okay, um, how do we give room to him? Like to the Nehemiah, if you will, to build and bring security and well-being so that our emotional life is good, we're not vulnerable, not getting ripped off, not bad guys are coming into our home, into our minds. Um, how do we give room to the Holy Spirit rather than grieve the Holy Spirit, which would be out of step with what he wants to accomplish? Well, based upon this passage, and it's in your notes, the Holy Spirit is really focused on four areas. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but in this passage, four areas. One is your sexual purity. 
And that's verse 17 down to verse 24. Second area is verse 25 and verse 29, which is pure speech, which comes out of your mouth. Because life and death are in the power of the, can someone tell me? Tongue. And then you have verse 26 through 27 and verse 31 to 32, which is like the Holy Spirit really wants you to manage your anger properly, coupled with forgiveness, because if the anger issue gets out of control, you give actually a door to the devil himself in your life. And, and we're going to talk about just in a little bit, there's righteous anger, there's unrighteous anger, but, but, right, but anger needs to be managed correctly, because if it isn't managed correctly... It's like, it, it's just all hell can break loose, like literally. In verse 27, he's really concerned about a responsible work ethic and helping others with what God has given us. Look up here for a second. Watch this. I'm going to introduce another metaphor. Grieving the Holy Spirit, which we don't want to do, because he he's, he's wants to protect you and bless you and bring the personal work of Jesus afresh to your heart on a daily basis. Can I hear an amen to that? It's like he's really awesome. We need his help daily. Okay, grieving him would be being, I'm going to now a metaphor, being out of step with what he's wanting to bring to your life, how he wants to bless and protect you. So I'm just, now just think of a dance, you know, with your bride or something. You're, you're, there's this harmony. I like dancing with my wife. And, she, and I just move her a little bit over here, and she's so responsive. I do, you know. So, and it's, I don't even know how she's so quick to respond. All right, so you're kind of doing that thing, right? And then, of course, you get the grandkids on, and they stand on your feet, and you're walking them around. So they kind of go where you go. But, um, but that dance is a beautiful picture, because the grief of the Holy Spirit would be to like step on his toes and you, wouldn't want to st- you don't want to step on his toes. Because if you step on his toes, then you'd be stepping outside of sexual purity. If you step on his toes, then your tongue, your, what's coming out of your mouth instead of giving life, is destroying not only your soul but other people. How many of you are tracking with me on this point, right? You don't want to be out of step with that. You don't want to grieve him. I mean, he's just going to put you on this killer dance and rhythm and melody, if you will, of perfect love and justice and virtue. He's going to protect you and me. So we don't want to grieve him. You know, we've noted recently that this generation... I'm telling you, this culture, 2015 in America, will draw every single one of us out. It will draw us out. It will draw out the true counterculture. It will make very clear who are Jesus Christ's followers. Very clear. It will draw out Genuine confessions of faith versus false confessions of faith. You know, Jesus said a man must be born again not only see or enter the kingdom of heaven. What an idea, being born again, new DNA. Yeah, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. DNA guaranteed will manifest itself. I've been looking at pictures of my grandfather. I showed you a picture of him last week. Remember that? I just often think about him. I'm talking about now, for those of you who are here, I have a grandfather who was in a fatal accident at 33 years of age. 
And so I've kind of like taken these, and my parents say I look a little bit like them. I'm so proud of that, to be frank with you. And, you know, I have kind of, well, I kind of have like a big nose, right? So, but it blessed me recently because I think I have my grandfather's nose. So I was like, okay. So I got some of his DNA, which is special. So DNA, I guarantee you, will make itself known. And as parents, we see this with our grandchildren. Isn't that wonderful? You just guarantee it's like DNA manifests itself. It will reveal Christians who pray and are filled with the Holy Spirit because it's such a relationship versus those who are stepping over the Spirit's toes and stepping on, grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, Pastor Timothy Keller in New York was asked what he felt was the major obstacle to an awakening in the church, a revival, a renewed obedience, which brings an intensification of the Holy Spirit in our life, in conviction and assurance, which is great, regeneration and sanctification, which is continued growth. And Keller's answer was in effect, and this, this is a guy who pastors in New York, great leader, he said that almost all singles outside the church and a majority inside the church are sleeping with each other. In other words, good old fornication. So the point is, is that what's impeding a renewed obedience and an awakening that gives room to the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives. Now, and to impact the generation, to protect and continue the work and growth of the Lord Jesus is sexual immorality. That's what he says. And this means then that the main problem is not theological or intellectual, but moral and sexual, which then actually impacts one's theology and intellectual life. I mean, the famous philosopher and writer Aldous Huxley was at least honest to admit in his work, Ends and Means, that he didn't want there to be a God and meaning because it interfered with his sexual freedom. Look, too many Christians have the stare in this generation, I'm telling you. And and it leaves them vulnerable to the consequences of the decay of sin. And it's for two reasons, I believe, personally. One is, based upon this passage, it is unrepentant sexual sin. And what the Holy Spirit will do in your life this morning is he's going he's to bring you into a dance that's going to free you from that sin. Can I hear a big amen to that? That's great stuff to do that. You want to dance with him. He wants to bring purity to your life. Here's the second reason. And that is, I'm going to put it this way, the, the tale, the tale of corporate America, which is really cons- based on consumerism and commercialism, wags the dog of the counterculture of the church, which stuns the church in kind of this arrested state of growth. Here's what I mean. Look at this passage, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must, what's that next word, must what? Deny himself. Well, that is counter to consumerism. Consumerism is, you know, give me what I want. Consumerism is the customer's always right. Consumer is, you know, I'm in this so long as it's comfortable and convenient for me. When, if, if I am sacrificing to the extent that I'm not getting back what is meeting my expectations, I'm no longer in it. Well, that, you can't be a disciple of Jesus if you think that way. Because there's, there's certain things in life that are worth it because they're worth it. 
Love is worth it because it's worth it. Can I hear an amen to that? So it's like whether you get anything out of it, it's just, it's right. I mean, worshiping God and honoring him because he created us and loves us and made us is just the right thing to do. It's not a means to an end of some personal agenda. Corporate America has, you know, this culture has totally seeped in to the thinking of believers in this generation. Consumerism. What's in it for me? How does it align with my agenda? I mean, how many Christians awaken today in effect saying, you know, um, I have a few options, it's Sunday. (laughs) Okay, I have a few options. And and what would be the most convenient or comfortable like option? And like one is, I'm serious now, one is going to church, but there's other options too. That's consumerism. Jesus um, will have to compete with other values which means that ultimately I I might end up losing the most important priority in my life, which is to worship God and grow as a follower of Christ. Consumerism. Um, And and then notice he says you must deny yourself and take up their cross and follow me. Well, to pick up a cross in the first century would be to associate, would be willing to associate with with what was not esteemed in culture, but actually de-esteemed in culture, which would be the antithesis of commercialism. Commercialism has to do with popularity. Is it it popular? I mean, how many people are behind it? I mean, too many Christians are, are, are consumers and they're also commercialists basing the value of things on whether or not it is popular or not. But they say, oh my gosh, that will kill us. Because more and more you see Defining marriage between a male and a female is not popular in our culture. So what does it leave us? Um, well, it leaves us standing on the truth of the scriptures. That's what it leaves us, okay? But I'm going to tell you it's not going to be popular. Purity is not popular. Reading your Bible is not popular. Going to church is, not, is increasingly not popular. I mean, the Lord Jesus just nailed it here. He's just saying, look, be careful. It's like self and what's convenient and and what's comfortable in the moment, you know, for you is an endless pit that takes you away potentially from the most important values on planet earth and before almighty God. Like my dad tells me a story when he he lives in Palm Desert and he had to fly out to Austin, Texas to deal with my, my sister. I have two sisters, but one of them recently passed away. So he had to deal with all these legal things and he had to sell my sister's house. And so um, he interviewed two people, long story short, he ended up going with this guy who was the number one real estate agent in the area. I don't know if it's all of Austin, but in the area. And um, so she ended up picking my dad up and they were talking and things and working on a deal, and he, he ended up hiring her. And then he, she said to him, she said, Josh, she said, please excuse me, I'm going to need to drop you off now. She says, because I got to go to Bible study. And it was like, you know, 11 a.m. or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got to go to Bible study. Why? Because I have priorities, that's why, you know. I was like, wait a second, wait, my dad, my dad is coming from, Palm Desert, he's by himself, it killed me about this. And he's like going and he's dealing with all this stuff about my, with my sister. And it's like, come on, I mean, real estate person. I mean, my dad can went a long way. I mean, could you give up your Bible? I actually so dug the story and so dug the priority and principle. 
I mean, praise God for it. Because it's getting less and less to say, oh, you know what, here, I have priorities. I'm not a consumer or a commercialist. I am a Jesus Christ follower. I'll tell you what sells today, the spirit of Antichrist, which is relativism. Can you see that we need the power of the Holy Spirit? If if Jesus said you must deny yourself, pick up the cross, therefore be willing to associate which was not esteemed in culture. Because the cross is the epitome of what is not esteemed. Man, how we need the strength of the Holy Spirit in our life to follow Jesus Christ in this generation. We need the power of the Spirit because there's no way we're going to dance in harmony with sexual purity, godly communication, forgiveness without His help. Can I hear an amen to that? So, just for time's sake, I need to go over this pretty quickly. I mean, look at verse 25. He addresses godly communication, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Life and death, of course, are in the power of the tongue. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. What comes out of your mouth not only impacts others, but your own soul. So it's like Holy Spirit wants to help us speak the truth, honor the Lord. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That's a loaded idea. And as I mentioned, I don't really have time to totally develop it, but it not only is... It not only is addressing vulgar talk, but slanderous and contemptuous talk. Instead, we speak in a way that that speaks of compassion, love, justice, understanding, forgiveness. Remember that acronym that we need to think before we speak? I think I have it up on the screen there. Uh, and, you know, the T stands for, hey, look, is this true? Is what's coming out of my mouth true? Okay, that's important to ask. Is what's coming out of my mouth really helpful? Is it really necessary? Is what's coming out of my mouth inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? It's good to ask those questions. And look at verse 26 down to verse 27. The Holy Spirit really cares about the anger issue. Now, this may sound kind of weird, but the truth is much of our life has to do with anger. It's true. When it says in verse 26, please look at it, be angry, okay, well, and do not sin, that identifies that there is a place for anger. Be angry, but do not, can someone tell me? Sin. Oh, okay. I mean, actually, there are some things we should be angry about. There is such a thing as righteous anger, abuse, we should be angry about, sexual exploitation, we should be angry about. We should not be content with the, in our own lives with the pursuit of godliness in our life. We should be content when it comes to material things. Learn to be content. Learn to enjoy what has been given to you and what you have. But when it comes to the pursuit of the Lord, we, 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 there should be some fire there. So glad you're here this morning, you guys. In fact, it would be actually a sin not to be angry, as I just mentioned, with regard to certain things. The Bible says we need to hate what's evil. Love what is good. Because if we're a generation that's just like, you know, that customs agent, we have the stare, we're not really thinking about it, and we're desensitized, that's super dangerous. 
We ought, there ought to be a righteous anger with regard to unrighteousness. When it comes to interpersonal relationships, inevitably we're going to bump into each other. Inevitably there will be adversity. And so therefore, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with it. It's absolutely critical that there's forgiveness, that there's a reboot. Don't give room to the devil. What a powerful picture that is. So in other words, you have interpersonal adversity, misunderstanding, challenges. It's really important to work through and to communicate and to forgive because if you don't, it's like you go to bed and it's unresolved and you carry that baggage around for a long time. It just, it just becomes something that the devil himself takes advantage of in a big, big way. So the Holy Spirit wants to then protect us. He's gonna do this by exalting the Lord Jesus and the life of Christ in our life, leading us, verse 32, to be kind to one another and to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, forgiveness is critical on so many levels. The greatest need we have is to receive God's forgiveness, which is in Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? And I tell you, The other great need is to give it. That's part of the Lord's healing in our life. Is is to actually go through a process of love and that's active and that's sacrificial and I'm not gonna hold that debt over their head anymore. I'm just not, you know, they don't owe me anything. I'm gonna be freed up from that injury. The Lord wants me freed up from the injustice, otherwise it destroys me. One person said, resentment makes you miserable. It keeps you stuck in the past. And when you're stuck in the past, you are controlled by the past. Every time you resent something, it controls you, you see. The Holy Spirit's gonna wanna say, hey, come and dance with me on this one. I want you to let it go. I want you under the control of love and and forgiveness and allowing for new beginnings. Let me remind you of five facts about forgiveness. Number one, forgiveness is remembering how much you've been forgiven, Ephesians 4.32. Forgiveness, number two, is relinquishing your right to get even, Romans 12.19. God is in the avenging business. Leave it up to him, not us. Number three, forgiveness is responding to evil with good. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Number four, forgiveness is repeating the process as long as it's necessary, Matthew 18, 21 through 22. However, number five, forgiveness doesn't mean trust has been restored in this relationship. But what it does mean is after the injury and the injustice, you are bringing it to God, allowing him to give you a new heart to be under his control, not under the control of the injury and the injustice. Can you see how important it is then that we give room to the Holy Spirit? Can I hear a big amen to that? Let me ask you a question. Because we as a church want to spend more time actually in prayer on Sunday mornings. Is the Holy Spirit, who is such a friend, is he speaking to you in such a way that he is wanting to align your life in the harmony of sexual purity? Do you need to repent? 
Do you need to return to the Lord? Is he, like this morning, aligning your life in a way that you have, that what comes out of your mouth is godly communication? Has he brought conviction to your life about certain areas of, you know, speaking in an ungodly way? Hey, listen, he has to me. Has he to you? Well, if so, let's, let's dance with him, if you will. Can I hear an amen to that? Let's dance with him, so to speak. Be in harmony with him. How about issues of forgiveness? Look, give him room.